prepare the royal baggage. My son is going on a trip. This trip is an excellent idea. Forty days of fornication. Simi, I have something else in mind. I intend to find my bride. Where will you find such a woman? In America. But where in New York can one find a woman suitable for a king? Queens. Oh, say, can you see? I'm coming to America. America. Welcome to Now Playing's Coming to America Retrospective Series. Hey, it's Cooper Kintay and Ebola. Hosted by Arnie. Oh my goodness, it is you! I cannot believe it! Stuart. I must admit, your style is far into my kingdom, but it's impressive. And Jacob. The three of you, three putzes. You should change the name to the three putzes. But be warned. This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. Oh, 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 that's too much. Now you stepped over the line. Now. Politically incorrect. We hope you enjoy the show. Tell me, Sam. Honest. How do I look? I think it is time to find your queen. Today, we are discussing Coming to America. Starring Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, James Earl Jones, John Amos, Madge Sinclair, Sherry Headley, directed by John Landis. This is Arnie, the now playing co-host who always lets his soul glow. I wish you did that more often, actually. This is Stuart. (laughs) And this is Jacob, and guys... I've got a secret. I worship the devil. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a secret. We knew that. <laughs> we are at one of my favorite movies again. It's amazing. We started covering some Eddie Murphy and Man Trading Places, now coming to America. We just need that Beverly Hills Cop reboot so we could do that. <laughs> No kidding. I mean, throw Beverly Hills Cop in here. These are movies where I didn't even need to research. I didn't even need to watch the movies. Of course I did, because I fucking love the movie, but... You're showing your hand, Arnie. You're showing your hand. I was there opening weekend. I mean, a new Eddie Murphy movie in the 80s. I was always there opening weekend. Yeah, this was his pinnacle, right? I mean, the 1988, he could do no wrong. I think he actually was being treated by the studio like this character at the beginning of this movie. Like, he was just being lavished with money and like, here he comes. He's the the savior of Paramount. So... Yeah, he was a big deal. Here's the funny thing. I know I rented it. I didn't go to the movie theater. I know I enjoyed it, but I couldn't remember anything about it. I saw it once, and honestly, the only thing that stuck in my mind was the barbershop. (laughs) That's shocking you don't remember anything from it, because this is a movie. I mean, the first thing I remember about it, I never saw it in theaters. I didn't see it till it was playing on cable. I I think Comedy Central, like, every weekend. But I, I remember, like, a friend of mine saw it, and he's like, oh my gosh, there's this scene. There's a girl and she's underwater cleaning his penis i'm like this movie sounds amazing i, I want to <laughs> see this thing but no i didn't see it till it was on cable i don't think i've ever seen it all the way through or in order it's just like it's just always on comedy central and it's like wherever it's at sit there and watch it but i could piece this movie together as i'm watching it for the first time the theatrical edition i'm like oh yeah yeah okay this goes here this and this one happens next like it's a very memorable movie for me even though i've never seen it in one sitting all the way through i think the thing i knew most about it 
was the lawsuit. I mean, this was the beginning of the end. I don't know about this. <laughs> this is where Eddie got in trouble. I mean, he, he reached the pinnacle, and then they came after him and said, Eddie, you stole these ideas. I mean, th there was, and it went on for years and years, this Art Buckwald King for a Day lawsuit in which the humorist for the Washington Post claims he had a treatment. Now, I don't know if people know what that is, but it basically it was just sort of like, it wasn't even a full script. It was like eight pages of what a, a story could be bought in 1983 to be developed for Eddie Murphy, among many other spec scripts and summaries. With John Landis as director. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was reported in 1985 in The Hollywood Reporter that Eddie had it. He had read it. And so, yes, it doesn't sound like it's that similar. Honestly, I went and saw the original thing, and it was about a African prince who came to Washington, D.C., and there was a coup back home, and he was overthrown and ended up poor on the streets and had to, you know, rebuild his fortune. That sounds like a very different movie. It does. That's trading continents, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm surprised he won on that. But you know what? I do think that maybe he inspired this because what happened was Eddie Murphy claims he had an idea for a movie about him being an African prince who's coming to America. And then David Sheffield and Barry Blaustein were hired to take it from his concept on. Well, if that's his concept, he may have been remembering this thing he was sort of talking about doing five years earlier. Yeah, that's the problem with Hollywood, is that you have people pitching you all the time. Hey, we want to do this movie with, you know, orangutan. Do you want to do this and that and that? You don't remember where people have told you their ideas have come from. So what may feel like an original idea ends up being something that sounds sort of like what was handed to you years before. So, yeah, similarities for sure. Inspiration. I think that is all what Art Buckwald claimed that it was. And he wanted just, you know, he wanted a, a money payout because this movie was an, an enormous hit. After it made $300 million internationally, he wanted $5 million. And the studio said, no way, we'll see you in court. And I think it was a really big mistake because it ended up airing a whole lot of dirty laundry about how unpleasant the shoot was. <laughs> it seems like such a cute, sweet little movie. Why did that come out during a lawsuit? <laughs> well, a lot of it came out before the lawsuit. I mean, during the press tour for this, Eddie Murphy was asked, you know, this is your second film with John Landis. Are you going to work with him again? And Eddie Murphy's reply was, Vic Morrow has more chance of working with John Ooh. Landis again than I do. Oh, man. Woo! If you don't get that joke, just know that Vic Morrow was the star of the Landis segment of Twilight Zone and was beheaded because of a stunt that went wrong. And Landis, I think that was the beef. My understanding was... Well, first of all, from while I can parse out, Arnie, maybe you know something more here. Eddie wanted to direct Coming to America. He came up with it while he was touring with Raw. You know, he even had a bit, I think, in his stand-up about, I need to, you know, go to find a Bush woman to marry. Give me half Eddie. Give me half Eddie, exactly. And so from that little exchange, he started thinking about this concept he called The Quest. 
And the, he was like, I want to make this movie. And the studio's like, yeah, Eddie, we don't ever tell you no, but mm, you really need a director. And Eddie was like, well, the only director I ever liked working with was John Landis on Trading Places. And I don't want to, I won't take anybody else. And John Landis, yeah, had had The Twilight Zone and had other bombs too. Into the Night with Jeff Goldblum, that was a stinker. Spies Like Us, his pairing with Dan Aykroyd was really bad. Some people like Three Amigos, but it didn't make any money. Everybody likes Three Amigos, but they didn't back then. Everyone likes it but you, apparently, Stuart. <laughs> but back then, they didn't. I'm probably the only person who saw Three Amigos three times in theaters. I saw it once. I didn't see it three times, but I saw it once. Yeah, I saw it once for each Amigo, with a different Amigo each time. And I probably watched it like once a month once it came out on tape. <laughs> Yeah, so I think, but it didn't make money back then. After Twilight Zone, even though he did Thriller, yeah, Landis was a pariah, and Eddie Murphy said he wanted to do Landis a solid. Landis took him on, you know, was hired before 48 Hours came out, brought him into trading places, and he liked working with Landis, but he also thought, you know, Landis could use a hand up. And so, come on, every Eddie Murphy movie makes a shit ton of money. Come on, Landis, let's go make Coming to America. Landis took it without knowing Eddie was a very different Eddie Murphy, and Murphy took it not knowing John Landis had a big chip on his shoulder about Eddie Murphy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, with Eddie Murphy now, Trading Places obviously had come out, Beverly Hills Cop, the second one had come out by this point. Like, this is the first Eddie Murphy film, like, where we're going to get multiple Murphys in different roles, right? Like, he's going to put on the latex suits and do a lot of skits. Like, this is his first time doing that on film. Yes, and, and it was Landis's idea, so we have Landis to thank for the clumps. Really? That's shocking. I thought this was all Eddie Murphy, like, I'm the huge star now, I get to do whatever I want. Yeah, I got this director, but it's my show. So you're saying Landis wanted all the latex suits. Yeah, Landis... Here's the story he tells, and this is probably too much detail, but he was seeing a documentary about Jewish stand-up comedians who wore blackface way back when. And so he knew Eddie Murphy was a good impersonator, and he knew Rick Baker. I mean, they'd worked together on American Werewolf in London with those great makeup effects. He went to Eddie and is like, Eddie, Rick Baker can make you look like an old Jewish man. Instead of a Jewish man doing blackface, let's have a black man do Jewish face. And so it started there. And then they had all these scenes written for like the barbershop and things. And more and more, they're like, let's just have Eddie do it. Let's just have Arsenio do it. <laughs> and the studio was like, how much superimposing are we going to do? And Landis is like, don't worry about it. I'm just going to cut around it. And so as they went, Rick Baker just kept coming up with more and more outfits. And the studio got mad at Rick Baker. They're like, that doesn't look like Eddie Murphy. That's kind of <laughs> the point. Well, why are we paying so much damn money for him not to look like Eddie Murphy? So that's why a couple of them, you can really tell it's Eddie because those were the last ones. But no, this was all Landis's idea. And now it's become his shtick. I don't know. Maybe his ego is such that he just won't work with anyone but him. So Landis is, is responsible for... The Nutty Professor, the clumps. Yep. Norbit, all of that stuff, maybe. <laughs> but he didn't make those films because they really didn't get along on this. And Eddie's version is Landis wanted to tell him what to do. 
didn't like his posse. Yeah, and he's the director. Why would the director <laughs> want to tell you what to do? <laughs> well, again, and then the other side of this is that Eddie wanted to direct this and thought Landis would just kind of sit there and be grateful that he had a job. And I guess Landis made some kind of comment like, you know, on Thriller, I told Michael Jackson to fuck off and I can tell Eddie Murphy to fuck off. People think that Eddie Murphy can't be told what to do, but I'll tell him to fuck off. And that just sort of soured the relationship. Eddie claims that Landis used the N-word, that he didn't like his posse, that when Mike Tyson visited the set, he was really rude to him. And something about a choking incident. Arnie, do you know about that one? Here's what happened. (laughs) is things were tense on set and Eddie Murphy shouted at Landis at one point, you're treating me like you treat everyone else. And Landis actually says on video these days, why is that a bad thing? Don't you want to be treated (laughs) like everyone else? Well, no, after Beverly Hills Cop, Eddie Murphy did not want to be treated like everyone else. And then there were just these little spats. But one day you mentioned Eddie's posse. And yes, Eddie's posse was there both on screen, meaning Arsenio Hall and some others, and off screen. And there were some people off screen who worked for Eddie Murphy Productions writing a sitcom. And Landis started talking to them. So Landis went over and they were writing a TV show. I don't think it ever got made. What's Alan watching? Never heard of it if it did. (laughs) No. No, me either. And Landis was like, why are you guys here? And these guys were like, we're working on a script for Eddie. Landis was like, well, we're not paying you. And they're like, no, Eddie's company. We're waiting for the deal to go through. And so Landis said, you guys are here and nobody's paying you. Eddie should be paying you. You don't come to New York unless you're getting paid. You go up and ask for your fucking money. (laughs) And he went up to Eddie and said, Eddie, your company is fucking these guys out of their money. Guys, don't be afraid to go up to Eddie and say, fuck you. (laughs) Which, again, sounds like something you could say to a good friend in jest is sort of like ribbing him a little. Like In some circumstances, that would pass as a roast or a kidding. But I don't think that they had that kind of relationship at that point during the shoot. And Eddie snapped. Yeah, Eddie grabbed Landis by the throat, not squeezing, put his arm around him, and this is Eddie Murphy telling this story. So Eddie Murphy, in a Playboy interview, is like, so I grabbed his throat, and I said to my friend Fruity, Fruity, what happens when people put my business in the street? And Fruity said, they get fucked up. (laughs) So at this point, as a counter move, this is per Eddie, Landis went to squeeze Murphy's genitals. (laughs) (laughs) And so... (laughs) Murphy cut Landis's wind off, his face turned red, his eyes watered, and then he ran off the set. Wow. So that was the choking, but that's not where it ends. After the choking, Landis goes to Murphy in his trailer, and usually this is where the director would probably be like, I'm sorry, Eddie, I shouldn't have been in your business. Let's just, you know, make nice. Let's get through the movie. I mean, that's kind of a director's job most of the time, unless I guess you're Joss Whedon or John Landis. And so he just unloaded on Eddie about how, how come you never came to my trial? If you'd been to my trial, it would have been over. 
you never cared about me. And to be clear, John Landis wanted Eddie Murphy to come to the Twilight Zone trial, which Eddie Murphy was not on that set. Like as a character witness? Yeah. Okay, he just wanted him to testify that this was a good director and responsible. Yeah. And Murphy, meanwhile, felt pissed because... Paramount did not want John Landis. Murphy said he had to bend over backwards to get John Landis this job, and now John Landis is chewing him out. Yeah, I think Eddie had a quote later saying, like, I wanted him to get off, but, like, that was his deal. Like, you know, he was not going to be there and get this guy off for killing kids, is basically what he told the press. Well, he also said to the press, I wasn't there. I don't know, but if you're the director and you have kids on the set at 1 a.m., and you yell action, you're at least partially responsible for what happens to them. Yeah, so maybe it's good he didn't go to the trial, John. But yes, <laughs> this sounds like the opposite of what's going on on screen in Coming to America. A charming, funny, fish-out-of-water comedy, and behind the scenes, just savage, just, ooh, just terrible. And again, all of this played out. You said you got it from interviews in Rolling Stone. I didn't realize it had, it had made journalism, but like it ended up in court documents, too. When Art Buchwald sued and said, I wrote this story... All of this stuff got dredged out and put, you know, into a court case that really, I think, hurt everyone's reputation. Yeah, it sounds like $5 million was a, a low price to pay to keep this all secret. Yes, I think it did change the way Hollywood, A, would accept pitches, and B, yeah, would just pay people off, right? Well, a lot of this Eddie was talking about long before that trial ended. I mean, Eddie Murphy was, again, talking about Vic Morrow during the press tour in 1988. Oof. Ow. All of this stuff about the choking and how if Landis had done it again, he would have whipped Landis's ass. I believe Eddie Murphy's quote in Playboy was, I'm going to be respected or I'm going to be feared. So if you don't respect me, I will whip your ass until you fear me. Mm. And that's in 1990. So it didn't just take the lawsuit for all this coming. Hmm. But in other embarrassing stuff, I think, again, I think it hurt Eddie because even though Eddie is thinking that it makes it look tough, there were also embarrassing things about his diva demands. Apparently there was like a $225 lunch at McDonald's. Like he like charged the company. Like, I don't know how you, did you buy everything three times? I don't know how you can spend that much for lunch at McDonald's, but <laughs> you know, just the kinds of things we expect really frankly, from A-list talent, you know, only silver M&Ms kind of stuff. But I think in the end, it really helped create the impression that Eddie Murphy was not uh, a man of the people anymore. Well, he was living up, I believe we mentioned Bubble Hill in the past, but Bubble Hill was the name of Murphy's giant mansion with like nine bowling alleys. And it's in Jersey, right? Yeah. And again, just the connotations of that. I live in a bubble. Oh, well, okay, yeah. That definitely feels like someone that is going to lose touch with their audience and very quickly. And I think we discussed that to some degree with another 48 hours. But here, two years before that movie, this is untouched by any of this scandal. This movie will come out and be the third biggest hit of the year make 180 million in the states, 300 internationally and really be another jewel in Murphy's crown, one of his biggest successes. 
I was surprised this was R. Coming back, I thought Eddie Murphy was in his PG-13 heyday. This was a little bit more lewd. I'm going to say it earns it, but I remembered it as a PG-13 movie, like Golden Child. The only PG-13 movie he had done was Golden Child. Everything else was a hard R. Yeah, that that was the thing. I never got to see his movies as a kid because they were always R-rated. It wasn't until, like, Daddy Daycare, I I guess the Nutty Professor, when he started going PG-13. Disney. Yeah, he went to to a different studio. But yeah, that was the big surprise, among many, really, coming back to this movie 30-some years later. Oh, no, I remember. This came out, I was 13 years old. And I loved my town in Florida. They did not care. Come on in, buy a ticket. And I went right on in alone to see this movie. And I didn't expect so many titties. Yeah, that was all new because I've only seen this on cable. Yeah, they didn't have that kind of stuff in Beverly Hills Cops. Not much of it. Not this much of it. I wasn't prepared for what I was going to see. And the thing about this, I've already shown my hand. When I saw it in theaters, I liked it because Eddie Murphy cursed and there were naked women. But I walked out going, well, no Beverly Hills Cop, no trading places, and didn't really think about it all that much. And then, like you said, Jacob, this is always on. And over the past 15 years, it's been on so much. I've been rewatching it and I'm like, I get a lot of these jokes now that I didn't get when I was 13. I didn't understand what Jerry Curl was when I was 13. I didn't understand the soul glow joke. I didn't understand anything except like the most basic, oh, look, Louis Anderson spilled a milkshake kind of joke. I think I was disappointed because it wasn't Eddie. And even Eddie said at the time, all of his movies so far were Eddie Murphy playing Eddie Murphy. This was his first time playing a character. And I think that disappointed me. Yeah. Well, let's find out who he played. Arnie, give him the plot, and we'll find out what happens in Coming to America. Eddie Murphy plays Prince Akeem Jaffer of Zamunda. He is heir to the crown. Tradition dictates that the prince shall, on his 21st birthday, meet and marry his queen, a woman chosen by King Jaffa Jofer, played by James Earl Jones, and Queen Elian Jofer, played by Madge Sinclair. But Akeem wants to marry someone who challenges him intellectually, so he convinces his father to postpone the marriage 40 days. During that time, Akeem and his friend and servant Semi, played by Arsenio Hall, will go to America to find a smart bride. Being a king, Akeem thinks the best place to find a bride is Queens, New York. There's some culture shock when the wealthy prince goes to Queens, and his early attempts to meet women are unsuccessful. But then Akeem sees Lisa McDowell, played by Sherry Headley. For Akeem, it's love at first sight, but Lisa is already involved with the wealthy Daryl Jenks, played by Eric LaSalle. As Lisa is an executive at her father's fast food restaurant McDowell's, which rips off McDonald's in every way, Akeem and Semi pose as African goat herders who came to America to go to college and get jobs at the restaurant. There, Akeem is able to connect with Lisa. When Daryl tries to force Lisa into an engagement, Lisa breaks up with Daryl and starts going out with Akeem, still thinking he is a poor goat herder. But Semi isn't enjoying poor life in Queens and telegraphs King Jofer for a million dollars. This brings the king and queen of Zamunda to New York to retrieve their son. During this, Lisa discovers Akeem lied to her, that he's really a wealthy prince, and she breaks up with him. (laughs) What? (laughs) You mean you're rich? Forget you! (laughs) 
Give me half, Eddie. Yeah, I can't take this deception. Especially in the 80s. Resigned, Akeem returns to Zamunda for his arranged marriage. But when his bride comes down the aisle, it's Lisa. King Jofer changed Zamunda tradition and lets Akeem marry the woman he truly loves as credits roll. And as they start, nice miniature work here. We get to see Zamunda, not Wakanda, Zamunda. <laughs> but same concept. It is a nice little map painting as you zoom in on this palace. It is similar concept because while Wakanda had all the vibranium, I didn't realize this, but apparently Zamunda is supposed to be the country where diamonds are primarily sent from. So it's a very wealthy country. Is that what it is? Because when I look at the king's crown and later Akeem's crown, <laughs> those are some cheap-ass crowns. Like, the props department should be shocked. <laughs> In the Art Bachwald king for a day, it was oil. But uh, they don't go into any details as to why these people are rich. They're just the richest African nation, or really maybe even the richest nation in the world. And so what we have here is kind of a return to trading places, except that Eddie Murphy is now playing the Dan Aykroyd, like Winthrop role. You know, like everything is done for him just as it was done for Dan Aykroyd. It did remind me a lot of that beginning when I talked in Trading Places about how long is that morning ritual? But the difference is Dan Aykroyd actually had an office he had to get to. Here, Eddie Murphy, I remember I did find it funny that, you know, he's woken up by a live symphony. Does anybody really sleep on their back like that with their hands folded like a, they're dead in a coffin? <laughs> It was really distracting how staged this all looked, the, this opening stuff. And I get it, like, we're supposed to get that Akeem is bored with this life. He's not satisfied. But, like, yeah, the fact that he's laying on his back, those, you know, that comforter, like, perfectly over him and that orchestra comes in, like, I don't know. When you're this rich, do you need to be woken up? Like, just get up whenever you want. You say Eddie's playing a character. I think Eddie Murphy is being Eddie Murphy in 1988. I think this was his life. He's really bored with all this. I think that, like, everywhere he goes, he's being showered with cars and money. And, I mean, the studio literally just, just the file for all his projects was just called money. And they had, like, that was what they printed <laughs> on it. Like, he was just known. They, they created a custom statue of him holding up the Paramount Mountain. And he was the force that was holding up the mountain. I mean, they were really throwing idolatry at this man. And so I think that he's being honest in saying that, like, maybe I'm a little bored uh, with uh, this kind of pampered life and wondering why can't I have a good romantic comedy? Why won't Hollywood make black people romantic stars? I mean, that was sort of what he was really pushing here. And I think what made Paramount nervous was that typically African-Americans just didn't get to have romantic comedy roles at this time. Yeah, what, what I'm surprised is, besides Eddie Murphy and Jewish face and Louis Anderson, I think everyone's black in this film. And it's not made a big deal of. This isn't I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, which is a comedy from around the same time that I really liked back then. And this isn't Eddie Murphy as the black person surrounded by white people, which had been most of his movies. This is an African nation, and it's going to be filled with African-American actors and actresses, and yet... It had huge crossover appeal. This movie couldn't make as much money as it did if it was only appealing to the same audience that went to see Shaft and Blackula. Right. 
Yeah, those days were gone. And, and that is, I mean, I, I really didn't recognize the importance of Eddie Murphy in black cinema because I do feel like a lot of his films are, they don't come with those kinds of messages imprinted in bold in them. But he did. He was showing a different side, uh, a new Sidney Poitier. And um, this movie will feel more than a little like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner by the end of it. I mean, I definitely feel like he was taking that mantle and trying to say that, yes, I can be romantic. This is a stretch for me. And that, yes, of course I have women that can clean my royal penis. And of course I can have the most beautiful object, you know, being that from the moment she's born, I believe this woman has been indoctrinated to do everything that Eddie slash Akeem pleases. But that's not what the character wants. Do you think she takes over the job for the wipers? <laughs> God only knows. I, I do feel for a key, man. At 21, I want to wipe my own ass by that point. Like, I don't know. That's got to be weird. I, I do like it when he's talking to his father. I'm 21 and have never tied my own shoes. I tied my own <laughs> shoes once. It is highly <laughs> overrated. <laughs> that is the weird thing for me, though, is that James Earl Jones is the father. Like, yes, he feels like he's had this very chauvinistic, privileged upbringing where, you know, he is the king. But they talk about... You know, Akeem's fiance, how she will do anything for him. We'll get a little funny scene where she proves that. But I don't feel like the queen, James Earl Jones' wife in this, like, is that subservient. Like, she's the strong-willed one by the end that's going to change the tradition. Well, you got to wait all movie. Yeah, but she never seems like a bimbo like this fiance does when we meet her. Eh, the thing is, I get kind of a Jefferson's relationship off of them, how Louise would stand up to George, you know. And John Amos in this, it makes me think of good times before they killed off John Amos. Amos's character where you know the wife was always very strong in those shows and Stuart you mentioned Sidney Poitier they wanted him to play the king here ah they couldn't afford him and Sidney apparently gave Landis shit like I would have done it cheaper if you'd come to me but his agent didn't say he'd do it cheaper James Earl Jones was pick number two but I think James Earl Jones is great in this I mean he tried comedy before he was in Soul Man it didn't work but here, he's, his comic timing is great. He wasn't playing a comedic role in Soul Man, from what I remember. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> he was trying to do comedy. You know, he's not in this a whole lot, but he's fun when he shows up, and he's got some good one-liners. He's got presence. I mean, he definitely commands. He wears that lion sash yes. <laughs> really, really well. And so, yes, you definitely believe he's the king of a rich country and is willing to indulge his son after this very lavish, hilarious like wedding where, again, this is new for Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy told jokes about how he wanted a woman that had no intelligence and would be subservient and raw. And now he's actually saying, no, I like an independent thinker. I want a partner who's going to challenge me. And so that's the new side. What also is a new side is any Eddie Murphy film that has a Paula Abdul choreographed like three minute dance routine. Yeah, what is with this dance scene goes on way too long. Paula's involved, I guess. Okay. It should be said that they had 40, 45 million on this set, like bigger than Ghostbusters. N not enough to get Sidney Poitier, but we could get Paula Abdul to do a dance number. Not enough for Poitier, but there is a bloat to it. They definitely were like, we are spending all of the money, and I think a lot of it went to Murphy for good reason. I mean, he's in it a lot. He's in it 
he is the movie. But yes, these sets, these dances. Murphy got eight plus fifteen percent of the rentals, whereas Landis got six hundred thousand and ten percent of the gross. But yeah, these dances, all of this stuff, it feels like John Landis said, you know, I always wanted to do an MGM musical. Give me three minutes. And so yeah, we just have it. It's not comedic. It doesn't do anything for the comedy. It's just here because we can do it. The words that Landis kept using when he talked about this is he's making a fairy tale and he wanted this to feel like a fairy tale kingdom and be this lavish and this overwrought really. It's kind of like a reverse Cinderella. Yeah, I get the picture, though, within 30 seconds of this dance. I don't need the full three minutes. Uh, again, the, Stuart, you mentioned there's a lot of bloat in this film. I agree, and, and I feel it here. I want to get to the jokes. It's worth it to get Oha. He has this, like, stone-faced servant who's the one that wakes him up and does all of that. And when he, like, cuts out there with that acapella, she's your queen! I, I did not expect that. That was the first laugh of the movie. That was the first time I laughed out loud in this movie. Completely free of infection to be used at your, <laughs> your discretion. discretion. <laughs> Waiting only for your direction. That was a good line, yes. Yeah, Oha is... Uh, is uh, it's an Eddie Murphy movie. I will give him all of the props for keeping this movie afloat. But there are charming character actors on the edges here. And Oha is one for me. And if you recognized the bride's father, the general there, it's King Willie. From Predator? <laughs> the voodoo king of Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Predator 2. Don't... Not Predator, the Predator yes. 2. <laughs> That's why I had no idea who you were talking about at first. Big difference. <laughs> and we're introduced to Arsenio Hall here as well as the somewhat sniveling friend of his. When he goes and meets the king and queen, you can tell the queen especially has no use for this guy. Yeah, so he's just a friend, like childhood friend. Like we don't get any backstory to him. He's always just hanging around. It was confusing for me too, because I remembered he was the servant and I thought he would be playing like the butler role, kind of like John Gilgood and Arthur to Dudley Moore. Like he would be always suffering the, the whims of his master. But it's not that role at all. It does feel like, if anything, he's like, yeah, let's go to America and, and have 40 days of fornication. And then he feels blue balled when his chaste friend wants to find romance. Yeah, he's the one taking advantage of all this royalty. Again, Akeem's bored, semi. He wants to party. And what is the history with Arsenio Hall? Like, I came to know him when he had his late night show. I, I'm guessing he was a comic before then. He, he was a comic. I wondered this very much. I'm like, because I looked him up, he had not done much. And at the time when this movie came out, he was the voice of Winston Zedmore on the Ghostbusters cartoon. And that was his biggest credit. Really? <laughs> Apparently what happened was, this is how Arsenio tells the story. Eddie Murphy did an interview and said, there's only two black stand-up comedians in the United States, me and Richard Pryor. And so somebody called up Arsenio and was like, what do you respond to Eddie Murphy's thing? And Arsenio just went off. And then Eddie saw Arsenio do stand-up and called him up. And they just started hanging out and became friends. And then when this movie got started, Eddie called him up and said, you don't have to do that Ghostbuster shit no more. Come on, we're making Coming to America. <laughs> yeah, so it sort of started out as like Dane calling, but it, they 
had a, yeah, I mean, I definitely remember Arsenio would trot Eddie out as a very special guest, and in fact got in trouble on In Living Color. They made fun of him for being the Eddie Murphy name dropper. It was used to prop up his nighttime show, which came right after this movie. I think he did this and the Paul Abdul Straight Up video on the backs of the Coming to America success. And, uh, I mean, but I remember that In Living Color skit. He didn't give a damn that they kept saying, my best friend, Eddie Murphy. He was most upset because they put ass pads in the actor and they were saying he had a big ass. I'm really upset about that. (laughs) (laughs) I remember this. But, no, it's it does seem like, yeah, Eddie has a posse. Arsenio was lucky enough to get in it. And... So he is here in a co-starring role. And I wondered, you know, I've I've often wondered if these two stayed in touch, but we're doing this movie leading to a sequel. Arsenio is back. So, yeah. Yeah. My thought before I saw the previews was that they wouldn't be able to get him, that that Eddie Murphy wouldn't wouldn't use him. But he's back. He will be back. He's got to be back. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that next time. But yeah, I feel like you got to have semi if you're going to do a sequel. Okay. So yeah, we have this priceless yeah wedding where like one of my favorite jokes is this is the engagement. They're not getting married yet. It's the royal engagement. No, this is the wedding. It is. They're selling shirts to the royal engagement. No, everybody is there for the wedding. Oh, I think it's all one thing. She doesn't have a wedding dress or anything. That's weird. I thought the same thing, Jacob. I've always thought this was their meeting and the wedding would be soon. But on the bonus features, Landis is saying that the big dance was the opening to the wedding ceremony. And since it is an arranged marriage, Akeem has no say in this. So they're just jumping right to it. And she is in this very gold ornate gown and things and her father the colonel is there to give her away so i'd never seen it as the wedding ceremony before but that was the intent of the film yeah i mean i think it would be days of processionals and lavish fanfare but with the exception that this man it was all done to him just like brushing his teeth and and wiping his ass like i have no role in my life and so it's not really that he's rejecting Amani per se he's just rejecting you know having no free will and no control and so he just I love the moment where he pulls her aside and her bridal (laughs) train is so long it takes like a minute to even close the door to have that private moment and King Joffre walks in and and sees her (laughs) hopping on one leg and barking like a dog and saying I see you two are getting along now she'd moved on to the orangutan and I just yeah these are funny jokes I mean my wife and I do this all the time to each other you make her bark and hop on one leg no what would you like for dinner tonight whatever you like (laughs) and then yeah i usually do end up by saying bark like a dog but (laughs) 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 i don't make her hop but no this is these are jokes that i didn't necessarily find so funny although i brought this up with trading places and i did not realize i would come back here Eddie breaks the fourth wall with that dog barking. He looks right at the audience like, can you believe this shit? Mm -hmm. And again, I think on some level, people are coming up and barking and hopping on one leg all the time. I think this is the reality that Eddie Murphy lives day in, day out. Except for Landis. And if you don't bark like a dog, you get choked, motherfucker. Well, that is the interesting thing is you would think that this story would be about someone that runs away from their privilege. I mean, the only comparative I have is like Buddha, who like... 
who had this kind of pampered existence and then said, I'm going to live a life of, you know, minimalism and, and, and withholding. Do you feel like, because I'm like, oh, this is interesting, you know, 1988, especially again, coming from Eddie Murphy, we've talked about his stand-up routines about women. I'm like, oh, this is kind of feminist. He wants a, a free thinking woman uh, who speaks her own mind that just doesn't take orders. But I Never get a sense of why Akeem believes that. Like, he just seems like a nice guy throughout the entire film. Like, I never get why he's pushing against his privilege. The What I get from it is he's so bored that he wants somebody to provide spice. And having yet another servant isn't going to be the one who does that. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Jacob. You might want to introduce the idea of someone challenging him and realizing, I like that. That's what I want. You you would usually want to introduce the reason why the character goes on to a, a quest. But you have that with Semi, because you know, Semi is the sycophant in front of the king and queen, but then, as soon as they're alone, he calls Akeem sweat from a rhinoceros's balls, and Akeem likes it you know it's playful they're sparring both physically and verbally and this is Akeem's best friend so you get the time when Akeem comes to life is when he's with Semi who doesn't kiss his ass it's kind of there it's kind of there I get that it's boredom but I would have liked more than just boredom I agree I, I I see what you both are saying and I agree I just this is what I have seen in the movie when you've watched it you know in triple digit times, <laughs> I was going to say triple digits at least. <laughs> then you start to just see things and come up with your own linkages. But yes, it is partially that he is just, he's a prince in every sense of the word. And he wants a equal woman, not a servant. And, you know, part of that could be seeing his mother because his mother does not bow to the king. Right. Yeah. In their little exchange there, like she's talking about the, the difference between. The thin line between, what, loathing and... Love and nausea. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> I knew you'd know the line. I know every line, Stuart. Any question <laughs> you have about dialogue, I got it. Right. So, coin flip, which one are we going to go to? We know we're going to find our wife in America. He's already made Beverly Hills Cop, right? Yeah, I was thinking that exact same thing. It's like, <laughs> he's done the L.A. movie. Time to go to New York. Yeah. And Queens... They got a neighborhood named Queens, a whole borough. Where else to find a queen? It's kind of a bad pun, but like kind of perfect. It's a good joke. I always like that one. At the same time, yeah, it, it, it makes you chuckle. It does. And especially given that Queens at that time, in the 80s, New York itself was not that great. I mean, this movie came out one year before Jason Takes Manhattan, so we know what New York was like. You get off a boat, you get shot up with drugs un <laughs> unwillingly. A lot of Canadians around. Yes. So the fact that Queens was kind of this scraping by neighborhood at this point. New York in general, yeah, was not the Big Apple that we think of today, the the post-Giuliani jewel. It, had, it was rough and tumble, and that's the joke. I mean, a joke that Paramount had already told. It should be said they should have known they had a hit formula here because they had done this movie a couple of years before as Crocodile Dundee. And indeed, it's the same kind of setting, except instead of an Australian outback rugged man, we have this pampered prince. So it's kind of more funny to think about how someone uh, who's not used to seeing uh, things unwashed is going to do when they 
when they get to a walk up with rats and this crime scene and the body by jake guy doing the driving i knew body by jake so well when i had watched this oh that's who it is okay i remember body by jake okay i knew i knew that face all right yeah one of the first celebrity personal trainers that was yeah right around the same time jane fonda was getting people to aerobicize he was putting out workout tapes I do not know why Jake Steinfeld is the cabbie, but it works. I mean, it's good to see familiar faces. And I was just happy to see somebody I knew as the cab driver. And then there's a lot of people I know when they go into the barbershop. Well, yeah, it's all Arsenio Hall and Eddie Murphy. Well, there's two other people. There's Cuba Gooding Jr. In the chair. Yeah, he's getting his hair cut. What? I didn't recognize him. And Clint Smith is another friend of Eddie's, and he is the only other person there in the makeup. There's three people. You know, later on, we're going to see the three barbers sitting together. One of them is Clint Smith. Yeah. This is where Eddie fell in love with latex, though, right? He hadn't done that before. I can't think of it. You know, he had done one. One of my favorite SNL skits he ever did was when he went back to SNL after Beverly Hills Cop. It was his only time, I think, hosting SNL since he had left the cast. And his first skit was called White Like Me. And they had it, somebody just put him completely in white face so that he could see what it was like to be white in New York. And he'd get on a bus and it would be completely normal. And then the one black person would get off and somebody opened up their trench coat and it was a cocktail waitress and they started playing old music. And then he goes to a bank for a loan and there's an African-American loan officer that's like, you want us to give you a loan when you have no references, no credit and no address? And then a white banker comes in and says, oh, let me take care of this and starts just pulling out stacks of money. Pay us back anytime you want or don't. We don't care because you're white. (laughs) Was it convincing the makeup job? Like, obviously, it was a stage thing. It wasn't like people on the street that 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 weren't in on the joke thinking that he's white. But would you believe it? It wasn't Rick Baker good because it was mostly pancake makeup. But it was good. I mean, they put a more brown mustache over his mustache and painted him white. Yeah, I mean, it was semi-convincing. If I saw him on the street, I wouldn't go, hey, it's Eddie Murphy white. But that is the closest he'd come until this movie. But it just got me thinking when you said the first time. I'm like, he did do white like me. I will say the latex holds up. I think these makeup jobs still look very good. And the performances are very charming. And I can see why... I thought this was the whole movie. It's actually a very small part of the movie. They keep coming back to the barbershop almost for no reason other than (laughs) people just enjoy it so much. You could cut every scene probably and and, uh, you wouldn't notice it at least in terms of narrative. Yeah, and that's my problem is, you know, Barbershop, which would come out almost 20 years later and, you know, is all about this kind of setting. Like, there's some great dialogue in here. This one, I don't know. I was let down Like, I with all this riffing. Like, I think he did it better as the clumps. Like, I'm not Ooh. taken in by this whole Barbershop performance. I, I agree. Cut it all because it doesn't matter. And I'm not laughing. Oh, I am laughing. And I love the Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali conversation. And I'm finding them very funny. 
it, it just feels like characters, but no punchlines. And I'm looking for punchlines. Well, it feels like a separate movie. And then you're right. It did become the barbershop movies. This is obviously where they took that. People were like, that was the best stuff in coming to America. And we should just make a whole movie based on that. You feel like Eddie could have done it. Like this could have been a spinoff TV show or, you know, something else. Like it didn't have to be in coming to America. I'll actually agree with you, Jacob, in that the three scenes in the barbershop, only one is important, and that's where he goes in and is like, I want Jerry Curl because he saw a Soul Glow ad, and he's like, no, you got to keep it natural, and just cuts off his ponytail that had been his hair since birth. But we're setting up characters here that will have punchlines in later scenes when they leave the barbershop, too. These people are not just trapped in that barbershop. Well, and they also steer him about where to find a nice girl. Because at first, you know, he's going to try to just wander around the streets. You know, like his go to the nightclub in some really tacky 80s sweaters. Like he, he they have, I guess it's a scene that's missing. Where they're going to put Arsenio in, in, I guess not latex, but drag for a joke oh that that is funny though i mean i'm still laughing at these women however many times i see this you know just i'm not interested in a man unless he drives a bmw or the siamese twins really yeah yeah it's it it's not hitting me as hard as it's hitting you arnie i'll just put it that way yeah i can say that i could probably imagine that it was funny as if i were a child and you've been living with this movie for years and years coming back to it three decades later i feel like this movie is running a little long in its act one we probably could and should get to the queen stuff earlier like it feels like he could have been on the plane by the 12 minute mark and met lisa by the 20 minute mark and there's just a whole lot of skits uh that extend this You know, depending on how much you love this kind of humor. Landis agrees with you. Landis said, but Landis is the director who wanted to do this. That's why I thought this was all Murphy's idea. Well, Landis offered to do a cut that would be a little bit more economical. And Paramount's like, this movie made a ton of money. Nobody wants to see a shorter cut of this. It's staying as is. But I think that you have to have Akeem trying the single stuff life before he goes after a taken woman no i i agree i i'm just saying cut out half of these jokes a couple of them aren't the greatest but like peaches the rapper might have been a lot more funny in 88 than now <laughs> i mean they use two sets of twins i like the conjoined twin joke and then they bring more twins in this little montage i didn't think those two were twins i thought they were like trying to be salt and pepper oh okay maybe they look like they were dressed the same so i was thought twins yeah they were dressed the same but and they were rapping the whole time but they pretty quickly get it through akeem's head that new york single women may not just be every single one of them is the right one they're not all queens and queens yeah (laughs) yeah and this is why i want more of character work with akeem how is he feeling because this is called coming to america what does it feel like to be the you know there is a whole thing with african americans and and Africans, they're, you know, they, they're both considered black, but very different cultures. Uh, so I'm looking, is there going to be a clash with that? It seems like, what do we learn about America? There's a lot of swearing and we throw our garbage in the street. In New York, they do throw their garbage in the street. So no, no, I get that. But this feels like every cliche about New York, which sure it lives up to those, but I'm, I don't know because it's Eddie Murphy. I'm looking for sharper jokes. Loving New York the way I do. 
I like that they do have some of this. Like, when they need to get out of their clothes and dress like real New Yorkers, they go into one of the tourist shops. They come out with the I love New York buttons and things. No New Yorker wears that. You know, there was complaint in some circles of, of the black community when this came out that Eddie Murphy was not representing real black America experience. And even though this was a big hit and obviously black audiences love it and, it, and have rallied around it, there were published reviews and think pieces and critics that really, you know, as there always will be, that would take the contrary stand. I think Jacob, that you're saying of like, where are the points to the jokes? Why, why aren't you being more sophisticated? Why aren't you connecting with real people and real experience? Again, it, with a title like coming to America, feels like you you need to be making a statement i can appreciate that but i also recognize it was a decade full of that kind of stuff moscow on the hudson crocodile dundee splash there have been so many of this fish out of water comedy stuff and people making points about america if eddie murphy wants to make a fairy tale that's how i'm treating it it's cinderella and we should just appreciate it again the the what's novel about it what is cutting edge even though it may not feel edgy is the fact that it's a black romantic leading man and that just hadn't been something we had seen in decades and, and i agree with you there i watched this i'm like oh it's a mate like 300 million that especially in the 80s that is a ton of money and again for an almost all black cast when black panther came out a few years ago like it, it got that same kind of notoriety like oh look you could have a bunch of black superheroes and have it still be a big success so like i definitely feel that vibe with this one like i do feel it's important because of that i just wish you know the, the jokes were more pointed and it is and just a sharper script i see what you mean But by the same token, this to me is just kind of madcap and similar in many ways to trading places where the gags are going to come from all different directions. I definitely thought that. And I just I do think trading places is just more madcap like that one is just it it starts and like it's for two hours, like just pulling you through it. And it's got sharp jokes. This one, there's a lot of lags. Well, the jokes aren't sharp, but they're just, I mean, I think they probably played a little bit better closer to the era to to see somebody doing a Rick James sexual chocolate and deflating Whitney Houston's greatest love of all. That was hysterical. That would have been funnier when we had warmer memories of Whitney Houston, frankly. Is that what that was? Because, yeah, it fell flat. Well, to me, the biggest joke is Eddie Murphy can't sing. (laughs) I mean, Pert Your Mouth on Me was coming out around this time. Yeah, but, I mean, he's obviously playing somebody. I mean, Randy Watson is some forgotten TV actor. He's still citing, like, his resume of, of, like, being on some, like, what, cop show or something like that. A man you all know as Joe the Policeman from the What's Going Down episode of that's my mama (laughs) right whatever that is whatever obscure claim to fame and yet i know what that is you know what i'm saying I do. I do. Yes. And again, that's, that is a comment about what kind of ceiling blacks are experiencing as entertainers. Or maybe it's just a comment that Randy Watson was never going to go far in showbiz as this musical number exposes. It's hard for me to take any of this seriously because we should mention they go to this black awareness rally because that's where they're told they'll meet some nice girls by the barbers. And yeah, it, it's kind of a joke that you think of a black awareness rally, not a, a beauty pageant, but that's what it is. There they have Miss Black Awareness going on with I think it's Arsenio Hall as this preacher yep if there's a god somewhere (laughs) 
Again, I give me 30 seconds, not five minutes like they do. It may go on a little long, but I do like how the barbers punctuate it. You know, you got the one, that boy's good. Yeah, because they're in the crowd as well. And the others are just saying how they're really realizing how bad the show is. The fact that the band's called Sexual Chocolate. These are jokes that hold up for me. You know, again, Sexual Chocolate is one that gets a lot of references. And it's our first look at Soul Glow right there, because Randy has a nice Soul Glow haircut. So this is also where we do meet the McDowells, Lisa and her dad. They're catering the event. I don't know how he has not been sued out of existence by McDonald's. They're trying. The crazy thing is, I had always thought McDowell's was just a McDonald's replacement, but no, they're going to acknowledge that, like, they are direct competitors, just stealing their IP all over the place. (laughs) They've got the Big Mac. We got the Big Mick. I was really interested to see how McDonald's would feel about this in a movie, because, you know, like, this is a time where people care about how, you know, their brand is presented to the world. I mean, Kmart sucks and Rain Man, and you tank a whole corporation so i guess they had to get approval mcdonald's had to sign off and say it was okay to do this parody not only did they have to sign off but they said we love it because it shows us enforcing our intellectual property rights you show mcdonald's is going after them that's great go do it (laughs) (laughs) i don't know that i get the joke that this cleo guy created such a mcdonald's ripoff what does that mean well i've never given it a whole lot of thought beyond laughing at the big mick without the sesame seeds but i suppose put on the spot and looking for my college thesis i suppose it could be said that in entertainment african americans are often relegated to the cheap knockoffs you know you know you don't get dracula you get blackula you know and so if black people can't have mcdonald's but they get mcdowell's yeah i could kind of go with that but i would also argue they invented rock and roll and white people stole it. It'd be one thing if they were saying this was the original Golden Arches and then, you know, some Irish guy took away their concept, Ray Kroc or what have you. But I don't know. Like, we spend a lot of time on fast food humor and I'm, I don't know, it's where we meet the queen. I think that's the important part. The reason why it becomes a central focus is we need for a, a way to have this prince engage with the queen and have her not know that he comes from money. But he wants a woman who challenges his intellect as well as his loins. I don't think it's Lisa's speech about needing donations for black awareness that is what gets Akeem's attention. I think he is just dumbstruck by her beauty. That's a weird thing because it's like, oh, I don't want a bimbo that's just going to take my orders. But yeah, the way it plays out, she comes out to talk. Hey, we're trying to raise money. And he's, you know, taking Semi's clip of hundreds, thousands of dollars, probably just dropping it in there because he seems starstruck. Like he's just into her because of how she looks. It's not because she's trying to save the community or bring black awareness. It, It does feel like he's just physically attracted to her. Well, I think you're supposed to infer that it's kind of like the Miss America pageant where you like you you talk about world peace or whatever there there is some pretense that she's spoken about positivity and so you know rebuilding a park or something like that (laughs) so maybe he was a little bit moved by that but I don't know this actress I believe she's an unknown Sherry Headley yeah she was it was it was down to her and Vanessa Williams and they decided Vanessa Williams just 
if she turned down a prince, she'd be just fine. So they went with Sherry Headley. Another person who's actually coming back for next week. Not only that, but Vanessa Williams was kind of scandalized. You couldn't believe that she was innocent. I mean, like, she had already done a topless as Miss America and had her crown taken away. Yeah, so Sherry Headley, I looked her up because I'm like, has she done stuff since? And yeah, she's continued to work. This was really her first big role, and she's done stuff since then. A few things I've seen, but yeah, it's mostly just some soap operas until we get back to coming to America. The movie doesn't quite risk giving her enough to do. Like, I really like their moments together, but I really sense the movie is afraid to go too romantic. They want shtick all the time, and so we've always got to keep going back to see, like, Eddie Murphy mopping and Eddie Murphy doing, you know, his big grin. If you think of garbage, think of Akeem. That is the line. That's a good line. That is the line from this movie. I recognize the need for comedy, but I guess all I would say is I don't know whether it's they didn't trust this particular actress or whether they just felt like Eddie Murphy is a comedian and we want to keep the comedy ever flowing. But it would have been nice to slow down and and have this be a little bit more romantic, I guess, is what I would say. I think they saved that for later. I mean, initially, he's supposed to be a goat herder. Plus, he'd never had to even clean his own dick let alone mop a floor so i'm just speaking in general like i mean for thinking about the movie in its totality i feel like you could have focused more on these characters in the middle of the movie than all of the other barbershop kind of stuff but you know obviously you can't argue with the success of it people liked this formula My feeling is this is a bit of an ensemble film. I mean, Eddie Murphy's half the ensemble and Arsenio's another third, but I like that there's a variety of characters going on. I like that they keep the jokes coming. I didn't come here to see a romance film. I came here to see a rom-com and with Eddie Murphy in it, I want it to be heavy on the com. Yeah, agreed. You, You definitely want that. I guess I also wanted to know what did it mean that she had the suitor, that we have Daryl Jinks, Eric LaSalle before ER, uh, the scion of the Soul Glow company. Like, he lives off the Jerry Curl product revenue. I would love him. He's not coming back next week. I want to know so badly what happened to him now that the Jerry Curl's out of style. I really... Maybe there'll be an unknown cameo, but... Yeah, how are him and Patrice doing? Yeah, I I want to know that. Yeah, here's the thing. Like, he's not really different... Then Akeem, on some level, he's the son of a rich man who, you know, enjoys the spoils of that empire and kind of takes for granted his women. Uh, the difference is he's kind of mean. I think they, they end up like going to a basketball game and we see that he disparages Akeem. I think what the difference is, is Akeem is bored with his wealth. He is willing many times in this movie to give it up, just including short term by coming to Queens, living in a shithole apartment, taking a lowly job, whereas Daryl would just flash his money, flash his money, flash his money. And so that's the difference is they both have money, but they're kind of doppelgangers in which Daryl is the evil one who will use money for his influence. And he's greedy. He's so rich, but when asked to donate for the park by his girlfriend on stage, he doesn't put a penny in the donation. What is that? Like a, like a, (laughs) it's like one of those fast food plates. It wasn't even a donation bowl. 
No, it's the bowl they pass around at church. No, those bowls don't have holes in the side. This is like where you put the paper and give somebody a euro. <laughs> well, maybe that's why one of the barbers put his chicken bone yeah. in it. But Daryl doesn't put a penny in the bucket. But he takes credit for all of Akeem's money when asked by Lisa. Exactly. So this is where he's not like Akeem. It's, it is, you know, the doppelganger type effect. Yeah, but I mean, but on another arranged marriage, so to speak, that it will end up being that Lisa is kind of gets blindsided in the fact that her father and this man just decide she's going to get engaged to him. And I think she's only been dating him because, I don't know, it's it'd been fun for her. But she, I, she doesn't seem over the moon with him. And all of a sudden her life is, is a lot like Akeem's. No control. But I think she does like Daryl. And, you know, I can't let it go without mentioning when she does go off with Daryl and... Akeem goes back to the barber, and the barber's like, you don't need a jerry curl. Get in with her father. So Akeem tries to talk football with Mr. McDowell. John Amos being from professional football, the NFL, even funnier, yeah. But then we get to a scene that has always perplexed me. We get to our first shot of what life is like in the McDowell home, and Patrice is just dancing around, like doing these big dance moves. While I mean, Lisa's on the sofa rolling her eyes. I don't know. I had three sisters, and none of them were doing the shoulder shakes and trying to seduce the Bichon Frise by booty dancing in the middle of the living room. Yeah, no, my, my two girls, I never have caught one like dancing for the other one. That would seem very weird. <laughs> Okay, so it's not just me. They might dance together sometimes as a joke, but never like one <laughs> dancing for the other. Yeah, I've just always found that scene very weird. And Patrice would go on to do Cool as Ice, so this is not the last time she would dance on screen. Who was she in that? She was part of Ice's posse. Oh, okay. <laughs> she should have stuck. She have stuck with Eric LaSalle. <laughs> Daryl's much better for her than Vanilla Ice. <laughs> Did she give Vanilla Ice a handjob during a basketball game? <laughs> That's what I mean about the R-rated. That was when I looked it up. That was actually the moment. I was like, wow, that is not something I expected to see in this sweet little movie. My question is, when Akeem like, stands up to cheer and it's like halftime or timeout or something, Like, is, did he orgasm? Is that why he did that? <laughs> okay, I had that question this time. It seems like there's a mess that they did not show on screen. <laughs> okay, my whole life... My thinking was that at that moment, he realized, like, maybe she unzipped and grabbed. But this time watching it... Oh, no, she's going to town on him, and he's he's going with it. Yeah, and this time watching it, he does stand up and scream, yes, yes. Yes! And then he keeps his jacket right in front of his crotch. He holds the jacket over his crotch, yeah. The whole time, and I'm, I am thinking, all right, is there some cum stains there? But when he is standing in line for the bathroom and the Zamundan Nationals happen to notice who he is, he moves the coat, those pants are dry. So I think he was hiding an <laughs> erection, not hiding a cum stain. I, these are not debates I wish to have. It's I, Again, it's a little bluer than I would have thought. In this movie, it just is a little bit more like, wow, you're earning your R in this moment. And it tells us something about the sister, too. Like, we don't want Akeem to end up with Patrice because she's more, you know, saucy that way. We want him to get the good girl. 
I'm surprised Patrice did not end up with Semi. <laughs> you know, I think those two would go well together. Yeah, I thought that's how you do this kind of film. Like, you got sisters, one goes to the best friend. But the way the movie played it, I always wanted Akeem to go with Lisa, but watching it this time... You know, Patrice, there's not as much going on upstairs, and she is far more swayed by money. Akeem doesn't want that. I, I get it. No. The basketball scene is great, because Akeem thought he was going initially with Lisa, and then he finds out he's going with Patrice as a double date. Yeah, Daryl is just a complete asshole here. Do you play Chase the Monkey? And... But yeah, the the hand job did go on longer than I thought, because I, I guess I have been seeing this edited for television a lot myself. Yeah, and again, there is a thing where African-Americans and Africans see themselves differently. Like, you, you could see this kind of banner, but Chase the Monkey, again, I just, I want better observations. Yeah, I, it's a quick way to make us hate Daryl if we didn't already. If we didn't already think of him as ridiculous, now we think of him as contemptible. And he, even worse, he's a coward in the next scene, because when Lisa is trying to apologize for his rude remarks... M walks Sam motherfucking Jackson. I did not know this. Yes. This was one of his first roles, you know, early on, post getting off the drugs, building his career. Uh, here he is just robbing the place and getting to say the F word like he was wont to do. Yeah, this is, uh, of course, how, how he's going to start his career. Yeah, it does feel like he's done his typical Samuel L. Jackson shtick a hundred times already, but I guess that's just who he is. And this is where the setup, we saw Akeem and Sime earlier in their scene, like fighting with kendo sticks. They get to use their Zamunda fighting skills here with mops. Yeah, and, you know, Semi is on it, you know, and, and we haven't mentioned Louis Anderson as the clerk there. Louis Anderson, stand-up comedian. Is he one of Eddie Murphy's posse? I don't think so. It was so weird to see him in here i remember him being a thing in the 80s he's still going but yeah his i saw him host family feud not too long ago oh awful worst host of family feud worse than al borland <laughs> he is steve harvey's great but yeah louie not so good i think though eddie had done some stand-up tours recently when he was building up to raw he went back on the stand-up circuit, and maybe he just, you know, kind of brought some stand-up friends with him, and that could be why Louie's here. Louie has a thankless role as this clerk shoving money in the bag for Sam Jackson and spilling milkshakes. He gets one good speech about how he started mopping the floors, and if he's lucky in a few years, he'll be a fry cook. Yeah, two years he could be, yeah. It's a funny scene. If I were the editor, he would be a casualty. And I like Louis Anderson. I mean, I thought he was funny back in the day, but like this is stuff you just don't need. You don't need him. You just cut him out. I wonder how much more of him might be deleted because there are scenes that didn't make it and you can see a couple in the trailer. Louis Anderson, I just don't think you hire Louis Anderson just to spill a milkshake. Well, he wasn't Louis Anderson then. He was just someone they thought was funny and wouldn't upstage Eddie. I don't know. I mean, I knew who Louis Anderson was going in there, and I wasn't huge into stand-up, but I recognized Louis back in 88. But yeah, here, this shows the two Zamundans to be brave, and they think, now we're in with the dad. He invited us to his house that night. This is a good joke. <laughs> 
Semi is the valet, whereas Akeem is the bartender. And true to their personalities, Akeem doesn't mind. He never minds. The sweetness and why we really like him. Because there isn't a whole lot of character there. He's just sort of like this affable, like naive, untouched by the the darkness of the world. But that's what's sweet about him is that he doesn't mind doing the menial tasks, even though he doesn't need to. He thinks that it's, he takes pride. And I think that's why Lisa falls in love with him too. While, while as Simi is just like, I don't want to be here and I could be getting laid every night and instead I'm parking cars. And here we get a cameo I don't understand, but at one point talking to Eddie and Arsenio under the makeup is Toby Hooper? What? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre director? Yeah, did he put on someone's skin? <laughs> nope, he's just standing there listening to, if there's a lord somewhere, I know. And then he just goes, oh, excuse me, and walks off the screen. Did he accidentally walk on the set? <laughs> I don't know why. Eddie loves horror <laughs> movies, so maybe they're friends. I'm thinking Landis, you know, Landis and Hooper, werewolf, chainsaw, come up together, poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Sure. We haven't talked a whole lot about Arsenio yet in this film, but I think Arsenio is so necessary because Eddie Murphy is playing this unflappable, I almost said unfappable, but he got fapped, <laughs> this unflappable, <laughs> genial person. But you need somebody to give a reaction also. And so you see Semi, and Semi is mirroring what most of us would be thinking if forced it to do these things. And so Semi becomes the relatable one, whereas Akeem is the idealized one. Yeah, I really do feel like Arsenio Hall is the Greek choir of this film. Like, whenever you want to know how you're supposed to feel about something, cut away to him doing a reaction shot. Yeah. Or at least he's more of the horn dog, whereas Akeem is romantic. Like, he just has a, like a, you know, he wants to be in love. He doesn't want sex. I wish we got more stuff with Akeem. Like, we see him, he sends these earrings to Lisa that are worth $500,000. And, you know, they're from an admirer, not Daryl. I like Patrice. Nobody's sending you that unless you're giving them a little bootay. Yeah. <laughs> Patrice is also good. I like Sammy and Patrice in this movie. Yeah, they should have ended up together. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, those earrings, they kind of fall away. I mean, she doesn't confront Daryl. They'll come back at the end. Yeah, but I don't know. If somebody sent me a half million dollar anything, my entire life would suddenly be devoted to finding out who sent this and why. <laughs> it should be said. I complimented Trading Places for having a great old-fashioned script that was written long before they went into production. This movie... It was Eddie Murphy's concept, maybe, with a little help from Art Buckwald. And then they did a lot of, like, improvising and brought these, yeah, guys from the Police Academy sequels to give it some kind of structure. But I I think that overall, yeah, this movie is, is way more loose. And, you know, they just kind of made things up as they went along. And it has that kind of sloppy quality. Because of that, you're not seeing the tightness that you did in Trading Places. The script structure was all there. They knew what scenes would happen. There was dialogue for everything. But there was a lot of ad-libbing and, yeah, riffing and things going on. But one of my favorite jokes, again, I didn't get this as a kid. We're at this party and... You know, Daryl's talking about how women like it if you take charge. So he's going to take charge and go up to Mr. McDowell and say, you know, I want to marry Lisa. So McDowell is going to make this toast and brings up 
Daryl's family and just the stains on the sofa from the soul glow. (laughs) (laughs) That is a scene I always remember, that joke there. Yeah, 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 for sure. Cleo, the reason why he's so hot about it, too, it should be said, is even though he's made his money, so to speak, with McDowell's, the Soul Glow money is even bigger. He's thinking in terms of really selling off his daughter. He thinks that Lisa is going to come into a big inheritance. And so, like, he doesn't care the fact that she doesn't love him that much. And he doesn't really want her, once she starts showing interest, after this scene, she's going to, you know, chew Daryl out in the laundry room and then run out to the swing set. That is where we finally have. I mean, again, we're well into an hour into this movie. We finally have some romantic connection between Eddie Murphy and this actress. There's not a solid breakup moment. She does get really mad at Daryl and says, I'm tired of you and my father telling me how to live my life, echoing what Akeem said to his parents early in the film. But I never took that as a complete breakup with Daryl. But yes, sitting out on the swing set after Akeem is there, he, you know, quoting literature, he'd earlier quoted Nietzsche and just being very supportive, being a nice guy. And yeah, this is when Lisa starts to think, Maybe she can find love in a goat herder. I mean, he's going to have a degree someday from the (laughs) University of the United States. (laughs) But then Simi has to go and spoil everything by, first of all, protesting and not going into work and then pimping out the pad with hot tubs and neon. Yeah, just as Akeem's bringing Lisa over for dinner. Ah, this this one. This was the one joke that really had me screaming in the movie is... You know, there's the pimp pad. Akeem's like, if I take your money, you can't do any more harm. And he takes Lisa out and just gives the money to a couple of bums on the street. Is this a sequel to Trading Places? Yeah, a couple of bums. You mean Randolph and Mortimer? I did not know this was coming. I I did not know that we were continuing on. But how funny. They're even like in their hovels, in their cardboard boxes they're positioned right there on the waterfront right next to the world trade center where they used to work so they they they're they're back that's what they're screaming they're going to take that money they're going to run over there and invest in the morning and they're playing the trading places score too when they come so you get it and because i hadn't seen trading places when it came out but i was really into eddie murphy 86 87 88 trading places was one so fresh in my mind that I think a lot of people might not have gotten this joke necessarily, but with Trading Places doing well on video, yeah, this is so clever. I really thought that this might be a lead into Trading Places too. <laughs> it might have been if John Landis and Eddie Murphy got along better. <laughs> I like the joke. I don't want to think about the repercussions of Akeem's actions here. You know, recently, too bad we weren't doing Trading Places now. I feel like I'd understand the ending a lot better with this whole GameStop fiasco <laughs> that happened recently. Like, I'm like, do we really want these guys back? I'm- <laughs> But it's a funny joke. I like it. But again, it's all like you almost miss that there's a romance happening here. Like they're going out to dinner and she's getting to know him. I get that you don't want a ton of that, particularly when you're at a younger age and you're not thinking about romance. You're thinking about funny. But uh, the movie could have been served by having a little bit more heart. I do think this this actress, maybe she's not a great actress, but she's very charming, and she brings out a quality in Eddie Murphy I rarely see. 
I do agree, Stuart. I, I was surprised there's a lot less rom in this com than I remember. Like, I, I remember it being much more of a romantic comedy, and now it's kind of just a messy comedy, and there's a romance in it. But, yeah, I again, I like when Akeem's happy. You know, he's, he seems like a nice guy, and so I want to see this relationship because this is what the movie hinges on, is, is this relationship, and he's been looking for this person that's unlike anything he could find in Africa, and we want this big fairy tale ending, be happy with that, and... I don't get a whole lot of depth, which I'm, I'm still enjoying the film, but, you know, putting the now playing goggles on, you know, I want more there. If not more depth, than emotion. And I see emotion here because of coming off of Daryl. However, putting the now playing goggles on, Akeem's the rebound guy, right? <laughs> I'm done with the rich guy. Let me go fuck a goat herder for a while, and then I'll find a real husband. <laughs> but... I think that this scene is one I often overlook because there aren't a lot of jokes in it. You know, they kiss, they dance, and then the jokes come right after because you get Eddie Murphy screaming to be loved, singing that song as he's walking home, and fuck you too, you know? Typical New Yorker's response to a man in love. Yes, indeed. And of course, when he gets home. Meanwhile, Semi is calling the king for a million dollars. See, that's a funny scene. Like, again, I, I, a lot of the stuff is when Murphy isn't involved, when he's talking to that lady sending the telegram, and, and he's like, do you think 300000 is enough? Should I go 400 500 a million? She's like, yeah, that's like, I love that scene. It's funny. You wonder what the movie could have been if Eddie Murphy wasn't the crown jewel in, in the Paramount uh, lot, if they were willing to see this as an ensemble. Arnie, you say that to you it is, but to me, I feel like the, only the potential of an ensemble is here. All, there are great cast members that are ready. James Earl Jones could have done it. Oha, all of these people I like, but they really get very few scenes to do. For a movie as long as this is, almost two hours, they are marginalized. Yeah, I do hope that they, A, retain this magic, and B, get a little more time when we do see the sequel. But I think there's enough going on here. I do laugh that Patrice finds Semi in the pimped-out pad, and Semi's like, I'm the prince, Akeem's my servant. And Patrice immediately hops into the waterbed with Semi. Yeah, it's starting to feel like a Shakespearean comedy, where, like, identities get blurred and confused, and, yeah, people think the rich man's the poor man, and vice versa. That could be a plot to a movie in and of itself, and it's not. It's just kind of a throwaway thing. Like, they'll try to do a joke at the end with Patrice, like, being disappointed, but there's a whole thing, like, now Akeem's got to switch his apartment out, so he looks poor into Lisa and it feels like not a whole lot is done with that you'll like my place it's a real shithole yeah <laughs> yeah I mean you have to enjoy Frankie Falzon as the landlord I think he just you know I've seen him in a ton of stuff Barney but he's in all the Lecter movies he's the orderly Oh, yeah, that's right. I was thinking Coconut Sid from Do the Right Thing, and he was in Maximum Overdrive, of course. But him here, when you get to see him in the hot tub with a cigar. <sighs> and I gotta ask, like, at, at one point, Akeem, like, he's got a date with Lisa, and he, like, he's really excited and tells two kids... And it's so bizarre. Like, were those kids, the kids of someone related to this production? Do you know? Like, it, it, it was such a weird moment. Like, it just it felt like, oh, yeah, these kids want to be in it. And, you know, they're the craft services kids. And so, yeah, let's throw them in. Nobody ever discussed the scene. There's definitely bloat in here where we linger on taxi cab guys and 
again, I think Body by Jake might have been Eddie Murphy's trainer. You know, like that was his reputation. So yeah, I'll get my trainer a job. Like I'm just, <laughs> I'm doing favors for people, and like that's fine. But it's not you're not doing favors for your movie. Like when you bloat it with unnecessary cameos and extended scenes. That again, comedy is about timing. I, I don't know. Adam Sandler's made an entire career out of that, just employing his friends and making bloated films. I agree. But Landis did say that when filming was done, he had final cut, not Eddie. He cut the stuff he didn't think worked and kept in the stuff he thought he did. So you're right. Now that you've called out the scene with the two kids, I'm like, yeah, that really should have been cut. And I'm sure that's when Landis is thinking that should have been cut in retrospect. It gives Akeem something to be doing that he's on a date while the royal family is coming. Because that's really the, the climax of the film. The, the guess who's coming to dinner moment is that they were so alarmed by Simi's Western Union telegram that they're going to come to investigate. But do we have to hit every location with the royal family here? Again, this talking about bloat, it's like, we'll go to this apartment, then we'll go to the one downstairs. No, he's not there. Like, Don't forget the barbershop. Yeah, they go to the barbershop. Every location gets hit by this fan. And again, it just like this movie's two hours long, a bit long for a comedy or a rom-com. Like, and there's not, a, not a lot of jokes going on. So I'm like, well, let's get to the end. Why are we doing a travelogue now? Well, there's a joke about James Earl Jones lifting up Arsenio Hall like Darth Vader and that could happen at the McDowell's home I mean he also says he'll deal with Akeem himself Darth Vader line but here's what's funny about it is we've seen Akeem take this exact journey and we've seen how Akeem is trying to acclimate and trying to you know become a New Yorker and then you get to see his father do it and his father is just dismissive and unflappable and just like I am the king and still has the rose petals thrown in front of him. Yeah, exactly. And then that's going to give it away to Akeem that his father's in town will see rose petals in front of his slum of an apartment. I often wondered, are there servants who come along behind and like brush those up? (laughs) Well, that is a joke at one point. That's actually the reason why Akeem knows his dad is there was when he comes home from this museum date, he sees those rose petals. He knows the gig is up and and already he's nervous about her. What is the plan? I think part of my frustration with this is like now that he knows that this is his queen, shouldn't he come clean now? Why not show her that picture of his kingdom uh, that's part of the African exhibit? This is their second date, though. I think it's still a little early to make sure she loves you for you and won't be thrown off by this. And it is, a, again, a funny gag that they go to a museum and they happen to be in a Zamundan <laughs> exhibit that has a picture of the king, queen, and Akeem. But it's just the second date. He takes her home because she's ready to sleep with him and he sees the rose petals. And, oh, there's some coitus interruptus for Akeem. He was going to sow some royal oats and nope, daddy's here. Yeah, it's in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, everything pretty much takes place in one location. And so people come in and out and, and that's the energy that they bring into the room. Here, I feel like we're we're kind of cycling all around New York quite a bit here at the end. It's slowing down when it should be speeding up in that we they really should all just be congregating in one big area and new people walking in to keep escalating the jokes and and the confusion. That's what happens, though, after the king goes to McDowell's. They all decide they're going to convene at Lisa's home. Eventually. I mean, like, there's a whole lot of 
I mean, there's a, machinations. There's literally like two minutes between the time that King Joffy Jofer gives Mr. McDowell some money and when they're all gathering at the house. Yeah, but here's the difference. I, I guess for me, like comparing this to Trading Places, like that movie's got a momentum. We know what we're moving towards. Even when we get some silly guy in a monkey costume towards the end that I don't really like, like it's moving towards a goal. I know where it's going. This is just people, I don't know, it's almost like Keystone Cops, like walking in one door and out the other while the person was walking in, they're going out. Like, but it's not funny and it's not moving the story along. Like you could get could have got to this endpoint much quicker okay here's my biggest complaint about this film is once they do get to the mcdowell house i feel like the humor really drops in quality like i have really been laughing and i've seen this movie so often and it's become one of those movies where i start laughing before the joke is said because i know what's coming and it's still funny to me and usually with me you tell a joke two times and i'm sick of it but here i keep laughing but when they get to the mcdowell house and we get cleo there slamming the door in daryl's face and sicking the bichon on them they're playing this silly score music as they run back and forth to the door they're cutting to the dog for reactions all the time the dog breaks the fourth wall and looks at us and i'm looking at the dog too like they're hoping the bichon frise can carry this scene because it's manic and like it's not funny it's not emotional it loses all of what's going on in just a frenzy here well, I mean, you're talking about Daryl at the door, and he won't go away. No, I'm talking about this whole scene, though. From the time Daryl's at the door, till the time that Cleo reveals to Lisa that Akeem has his own money, with money with his face on it, to the king and queen arriving at the McDowell home. I mean, this goes on for a while, and just is you know, putting the queen in a lazy boy. Everything there just feels like it's from a lesser movie. I agree that it's running out of gas. And again, it might have been helpful at least to script this, like the whole thing could have happened in one location. I mean, you say that it all is, but no, like Akeem is running off to the Waldorf Astoria and running into Simi when she's running out the door. Like, I feel like instead of everyone coming and colliding and having to confront one another... Uh, they keep missing each other, and it's kind of making everything take longer to escalate to the point that she's not going to accept him. Like, he's going to eventually chase her down on a subway car and say, I'll give up my kingdom. And she <laughs> says, no one ever says, no, I don't want a rich guy. I don't want your money. This shot, I don't know what special effects or reverse was done. But when she throws those earrings and he just catches them, something is off about those earrings. Earrings would not fly so straight and just be... They're those cheap glass jewels that they used for the crowns. <laughs> they, don't, they don't move the same as real diamonds. But you get every other New Yorker, you get that old lady, if you're really a prince, I'll marry you. And he gives her the half million dollar earrings, but Lisa is gone. And, you know, I can understand Lisa feeling betrayed, you know? The fact that he's rich, but the fact that he lied to you the entire time you've known him. I mean, that's almost some serial killer level shit, right? Eh, 
No, it isn't. I, I can understand why he's not upfront about who he is. He He's specifically looking for someone that doesn't care that he's a prince. Like, of course you're going to hide that. Yeah. I'm thinking about other fairy tale kind of movies. There's so many movies, yeah, fairy tales like this. Arthur kind of had this premise where, you know, like Liza Minnelli and the millionaire or pretty woman. I think of more... You know, there are so many comedies where the romance is based off of a lie. Tootsie, when Dustin Hoffman takes the wig off and then stolen from just one of the guys. There are just so many movies in which the romance is based on some kind of fabrication. And in the climax, it comes out. Not some kind of fabrication. You're a different gender. Like, yeah, that usually is a bigger hurdle for people in the 80s to get over. But like, oh, you're rich is usually like, oh, okay, even better. Like, I don't think that's just like sprinkles on top of the sundae. What I'm saying is this is formula in that in so many rom-coms, the relationship is based on some kind of mistruth, and there, when it comes out, there's the brief breakup moment where the person's like, I can't believe you lied to me, and we're through, and then that person gets over it later on. Yeah, so you gotta earn that, like, otherwise it's contrived, like this. Yeah, maybe if Lisa had been so turned off when Daryl and her father, like, were trying to force her to get married, that she just said, no, I want someone, you know, that she turned against people with money, because, like, too much privilege, they think they control me, like, something, I need to know why she'd be turned off by finding that Akeem is a prince, because he seems like a real nice guy, he just didn't want to be taken advantage of, so he hid some information until he got to know someone better. Well, let me just ask you this, like, uh, for all of this you know, talk about I hate my privilege and my boredom. They go back to Zamunda. Like the climax is like, oh, we're, I, you know, Lisa's the one that gets like, oh, nah, let's stay with this. What if they had ended up poor? What if they ended up running McDowell's? I mean, you could have definitely sent the message that the life of privilege is not all that it's cracked up to be. I was actually wondering if that's what the sequel is going to be about, but I saw the trailer. It, it, they look like they're doing pretty well. Yeah, no, I, the second trailer spoils the entire next movie. I could tell you the entire next movie already. So don't watch that second trailer if you don't want that. But again, fairy tale. And in the 80s, I wouldn't have been happy if he gave up his money. In the 80s, you want the woman and the money, and that's what he got. Really? You you don't feel like, I feel like he should be a New Yorker. He should be living there with Lisa and not going back. This ending is so weird. As much as bloat is in this film, it feels like, oh, we, we were given a mandate to be at end the film at the two-hour mark, and we're just going to jump back to Zamunda in a wedding day, and Lisa's there all of a sudden. It is a little weird to make me think, you know... Lisa never had the making up with him scene. No. So, like, how does that go? It's like the mom says, oh, maybe we could change the tradition, and then we cut to the wedding. We're obviously supposed to believe that he's in that arranged marriage. That's what the film wants us to think. But does he think that? Is Lisa a surprise? Yeah, Lisa's a surprise. I mean, he looks completely downtrodden. As his queen to be is coming down the aisle. I just thought he was happy because he was getting to marry the woman he loved and not some arranged marriage. Again, they just jumped to this. It's just a cut, and this is the end of the film. There's no explanation. So I wasn't sure, like, if Akeem was in on it or not. It was really, it, it's the change for James Earl Jones' character. It's uh, what we've realized in this moment is that he conceded. And uh, again, the problem that 
Akeem has no control over his life is he didn't pick this, but hey, he's happy, you know, because in essence, he did want to marry Lisa. So he got what he wanted, but only through his father's approval. So he was going to go along with that arranged marriage that this whole film has told us he was against and wasn't going to do. Yep. Okay. He had 40 days. He had 40 days to find love. And what he found out was that he couldn't find love. Yeah, I've watched 90 Day Fiance. It's hard to do in a short period of time. And I would say, talking about convention, The Graduate and other movies that are based on this, usually there is that moment where the character is resigned to the relationship that doesn't make them fulfilled and a last-minute surprise. But this one is real quick. And Imani, the intended bride, she's on the arm of Arsenio. Yeah, she should end up with Daryl and Patrice should be with Semi. I don't know. That Patrice and Daryl end up together was kind of good. And Eric LaSalle gets to break the fourth wall. Everybody's breaking the fourth wall in this one with just a glance over when Patrice is like, oh, you're so wet. Let's get these pants off. Yeah, she does go straight for the pants. (laughs) I thought that was funny. I like Lisa throughout this film, except this last moment. They've been married and they're riding away in their carriage. And she goes would you really have given this all up for me? And he goes, absolutely. And we can renounce it now if you want to. There's just something about the way she goes, nah, that annoys the shit out of me. Well, it kind of reveals that again, who's, who's changed who? I mean, maybe we'll find out. We'll get answers. The good news is there's more of the story to be told. It doesn't feel like happily thereafter, but I would have thought that, Coming to America would have changed Akeem a little bit. And I don't know. It seems like uh, she's the one that got changed. By the way, I usually love Nile Rodgers. I think he is a really fun producer in pop music. And I read his autobiography. But what was his disco song? Well, he was part of the band Chic. So La Freak. That's right. La Freak. Would, would have been probably, I guess... His most famous of that, but he, you know, he produced everybody. Coming to America, does it not sound like James Brown's living in America? Like, a lot? Yeah. I got so confused. I thought James Brown's living in America was for this movie. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Same. I'm with you, Arnie. Yeah, this is not really good. And I heard, I don't know if you can confirm this or not, but they're, like, Eddie was calling, like, Prince and... And Michael Jackson and wanted them to like come to the set and do like a whole where they were all singing together. And uh, somebody put the kibosh on that. I think it was Nile Rogers was like, no, we're doing my song my way with the system. Don't Disturb This Groove is their most famous song is performing the song. You're half right. They did have that producer composer on the bonus features. And he said, Eddie Murphy had one piece of advice for the song. And it was to let him and Arsenio sing it. Apparently, the producer said he just had real vision about this song and thought this song was going to be a big hit like Ghostbusters was. And (sighs) so he didn't want to compromise anything. He was going to get the system and really just make the song exactly as he wanted it. And then the song flopped. He's like, maybe Eddie was right. Maybe if I'd had Eddie Murphy sing the song, it would have done much better. But we'll never know. I doubt it. We do know how Put Your Mouth On Me did. And I don't know if Arsenio can sing. I mean, saying, have me and Arsenio sing? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, scratch that, Niall. You don't need Arsenio on the record. So, Jacob and Stuart, do you recommend Coming to America? Jacob. 
It's an interesting thing when, like, we come to now playing, we got to put on those now playing goggles. Sometimes a film, it does well when you really dissect it and scrutinize it, and it, and it still holds up. And, you know, bad films are always bad films. <laughs> like, we, we have to dig down and look at the details of a lot of these video game or Stephen King things that just aren't great sleepwalkers. You know, you don't need uh, uh, those goggles to even be prescription-based. <laughs> like, you know they're bad. You want to go blind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But, you know, then there's the in-between where, like, my memory, like, this is a rip-roaring, hilarious film, even though I'd never seen it from start to finish, and I'd only seen it on TV, and you get commercial breaks. But maybe that's why I had that image, because this works better as skits to me. Like, there's a lot of bloat. And so when you see it, like, in kind of segments, like, it is, like, just hilarious. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that just carries throughout the film. Sitting down and, and watching it all in one sitting for the first time, a lot of stuff that I would have cut from it. Just get it leaner. And there's some story issues that I have with it you know is this a rom-com or is this a comedy about a romance is it a com-rom and I do feel like I I said like way back when we did when Harry met Sally romantic comedies are not my genre not something I typically seek out but I would have liked a little more romance a little more emotion a little more character those kind of things in this film I think it would have really helped me out understand Akeem better and, and, and why he's pushing against his privilege I mean there there's Definite improvements that can be made, I think, to this script. I, It's a shock to me that Landis is responsible for the, the latex suits and all that. I thought this was the height of Eddie Murphy's hubris, which, which he had earned. Like, he had some huge films. And, like, yeah, give him some money. Let him do whatever he wants. But I, I thought that was the problem here, not... Landis, who's got a whole lot of other problems too. But I still enjoy this. I've, I've been critical because that's what we do here on Now Playing. And I do think there are some flaws with this. But I sit down... I had a good time still. I laughed throughout it. I enjoyed Eddie Murphy's performance. I, you know, everyone's uh, Arsenio Hall. It's a fun film to, to sit through. It's not the rip roaring, just belly laughing. It, it, my stomach is aching so hard at the end of it, but I do have a good time. It's still a solid comedy. And like we've talked about before with comedies, like, you know, that is subjective, what makes you laugh. And, and sometimes you're throwing a lot of things at the wall and seeing what sticks and maybe only half the jokes work. Yeah, maybe only half the jokes work in this film, but they're pretty good jokes. Like, I, I laughed a lot of them and it's a, it's a fun film. It, it could be better, but it's still a pretty solid recommend for me. Stuart. Yeah, Jacob, I'm hearing a, a little bit of disappointment with you. I had the opposite reaction. It was a kind of nice surprise. I remembered this film being just a bunch of dumb latex you know, sight gags and Eddie Murphy stealing every scene that the whole movie was barbershop. But actually I feel like this movie does a really nice job of humanizing Eddie Murphy and just in time, because I do think the money was starting to corrupt him. The ego was getting too large. He was secluding in bubble Hill. So to see him, you know, kind of play off this pampered out of touch, snot image, and then say that, no, I want something real. I want uh, to know a real woman. And again, after some of those jokes he made in Raw, I think it was it was the right sentiment. And it made me actually kind of want to see Boomerang. I know that he made another romantic comedy that was not particularly financially successful after this same writers. And it makes me wonder, could he have swung that way uh, with more freedom? I, I actually feel like this was a good fit for Eddie to be a romantic comedy lead. I also think it's a nice stepping stone for African-American films in general, which is 
still entrenched deeply in the stereotypes of the 1970s black exploitation, and typically those films were written and directed by white people. Here, it is being written and directed by white people, but it is starting to reach for that more sophisticated romantic black film that we'd get a lot of in the 90s, films like Love and Basketball, Jason's Lyric, and what have you. So I feel like, yeah, Eddie Murphy made kind of an important film as well. I, unfortunately, it's less successful as a statement about consumerism. You know, in, in comparison to Trading Places, it definitely buys into this notion that money solves all the problems. And like, again, like the, he seems to have learned nothing from coming to America, like at all. Like that, that part of it surprised me. But it makes for a better Cinderella story than Pretty Women, which I think is a very repugnant version of this same notion that money and wealth uh, buys ownership of your romantic partner. Frankly, it's just a lesser film in general than Trading Places. That was a really entertaining, uh, solid, tightly written, the kind of comedy I like to see. This one feels like a series of gags, some work, some don't, and at nearly two hours of runtime, it really could have used some trimming. So for me, I think it's controversial, but I would have cut some of the barbershop stuff, some of the things that people love the most. It's not controversial to me, Stuart. I backed you up in that. <laughs> some of the stuff you probably love the most is what would probably need to be sacrificed to make this a better, more fluid and, and fast-paced film. But it's still sweet. It's messy, but it's funny. And I would give it a solid recommend. And of course, coming in here, Stating I love this film, I definitely recommend it. I'll agree that watching it, I had trouble putting the now playing goggles on. They kind of kept slipping off because I've seen this <laughs> film so often and just laugh at the jokes that I find funny. But watching it with those on, I noticed that the end loses steam, that any time that you have to keep cutting to the dog for a laugh means you're desperate. So that tells me that Landis knew his climax wasn't quite working. But you've got tremendous performances here across the board. Every single actor and actress in this is their character. Or in the case of Eddie and Arsenio, they're multiple characters. And that's what I like about this is it's just, you know, it is a comedy, which is definitely what I want from Eddie Murphy. I saw Boomerang. I remember not liking Boomerang. I remember thinking it wasn't funny and that Chris Rock had the best jokes. I was really let down by that and have not seen it since theaters. So this kept me laughing and has kept me laughing for different reasons for over 30 years. Damn, I'm old. <laughs> so... Is it a perfect film? You guys have made some very legitimate points that I'm not going to argue against. Just because I love the film doesn't mean that I can't acknowledge you guys are right. Some of these characters only exist for laughs, and if you're not laughing, then you're going to have a problem. But this film makes me laugh beginning to end. And when I heard they were doing a sequel, John Landis is not returning. He would work with Eddie again. Someday I hope we get to talk about Beverly Hills Cop 3. Yes. I so want to see that movie now, to know that, 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 yeah, such horrible things were said about each other, and then what? Within six years, they were, they were on the same set again. Wow, that must be something. That's shocking. <laughs> Eddie Murphy said, well, let's bring Landis into direct. Eddie Murphy invited Landis back. Wow, Beverly Hills Cop wow. 3, I've never seen it. But we will do that nope. when <laughs> that fourth movie materializes. I hear Netflix is going to make it. 
Well, next week we're going to be talking about the sequel, but the next year there was a sequel. Did you guys hear about this? No, because we're not covering it. And I have no idea what you're talking about. I Let me take a guess. ABC TV had somebody... Who would it be? Who would be the sad person that's going to fake being Eddie Murphy for a TV movie? Was it Mr. Cooper? I don't know the actor's name, but I remember hanging with Mr. Cooper. You're on the right track. It was CBS. Okay. Even worse. Even more antiseptic. So it was made for 80-year-olds. Yeah. And it wasn't a TV movie. It was a TV series. Mm-hmm. Remember I talked about how Eddie Murphy had some people on set there writing TV stuff? Well, Eddie Murphy was head of a TV production group for Paramount. And so Eddie said, I'm going to have my group do Coming to America the series. And Paramount's like, yes, please do that. Is this going to be like Perfect Strangers? Kind of. You know what it reminded me of? The pilot episode is out there. It aired once. Just the pilot. Okay. Just the pilot at 8 p.m. on July 4th, 1989. <laughs> so they didn't want anyone to watch it. <laughs> Everyone's watching. They're, they're drinking their beers, cooking their burgers, getting ready for the fireworks. No one's watching Coming to America. We're celebrating America. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> exactly. What a night to put it on. Apparently, CBS had a thing they did for two years called the Summer Playhouse Series. <laughs> Where they would just cheap buy pilots that weren't picked up for series and air them as sitcoms on their show. That could be kind of fun, actually. I mean, there is an enchantment to <laughs> failure. I can't deny. I kind of want to see it. Yeah, there's a whole podcast dedicated to people reading their failed pilots, like doing, you know, radio play versions of them. <laughs> So I'm guessing that it's just him and his queen trying to make it in New York and still having culture clash. You know, if this had had better writers and better promotion, I think we wouldn't know who Will Smith is. Because this is like nothing so much as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, only instead of coming from Philly, he came from Zamunda. And instead of going to a rich place, he's going to a poor place. It's like the backwards Fresh Prince. Oh, you tricked me. I thought you were telling me Will Smith got the role of Hakeem, but okay. <laughs> Will Smith wanted the role of the lead in this thing, which is not Hakeem, but Hakeem's little brother, Tariq. Huh. Did we see him in the film? I don't remember a brother. Nope. There isn't a brother. <laughs> okay. So he just pops out of nowhere. In voiceover at the start of the pilot, you hear Tariq saying... Now that my brother Akeem is the king, he's lost his sense of humor. When I tried to change our national anthem to like a virgin, he banished me to Queens. Oh my gosh. Hmm. Along with my assistant. The assistant. So there's a fake semi too? Arsenio? Not a fake semi. The real one? He's <laughs> <laughs> so sad. Paul Bates, the guy who was wipers. And singing She's Your Queen to Be actually co-starred in the show. Well, he was pretty good. I would imagine he was an asset. And who played the brother? I gotta know. <laughs> the lead? It's funny because they went through some names. Will Smith wanted the role of Tariq badly. And he kept calling Eddie, calling Eddie, and Eddie's like, you're just a rapper. No. 
Wow. Wesley Snipes audition <laughs> came in in full African ceremonial garb. He was working hard for it. This was pre Nino Brown. Mm-hmm. One year before New Jack. <laughs> Marlon Wayans. They wanted Marlon Wayans most, but he ended up getting another job. So we get to Tommy Davidson. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah. I mean, he was funny. According to him. And the people who made this show, he was the hot stand-up comic of 1988. Like, on Eddie Murphy's heels, he did a Stevie Wonder impression, he did a Bill Cosby impression. So, he seemed like the right choice, and he had two choices. He was offered co-lead on Murphy Brown, or he was offered coming to America. (laughs) And he said, you know, Eddie (laughs) Murphy has never had a bomb. Yeah, just, just wait about ten years. Paramount... Eddie Murphy, I'm set for life with royalties. This is going to go into syndication. I don't have to work at all. I'm just going to coming to America and doing six years there, and I'm set for life. Paramount demanded the writer be Ken Hecht, who I don't know him, but the writers of Coming to America weren't available slash didn't want to do it. And so Ken Hecht was brought in, who was a writer for Different Strokes and Webster. Okay, I can see what they're going for. (laughs) He was a white guy writing for this all-African-American sitcom, and really, the level of humor was painful. Yeah, just because he wrote, like, black kids adopted by white people, (laughs) now he's going to go to a full black sitcom now? That's the next step? What you talking about, Arnie? Truthfully, I was surprised that Family Matters hadn't started yet because it had a real Family Matters vibe. Family Matters would start like one month later. Was there an Urkel? No, but just the, you know, it it felt like a TGI Friday. Like this whole episode was about learning to respect your friends and introducing Tariq to the feeling of guilt. Like, it's not like he's from a different country. It's like he's from a different planet and doesn't know emotion. I don't understand it. But the humor was terrible. Ken Hecht wrote everything. And Davidson, I'll give him this. He really tried to be the new Eddie Murphy. And I think the script asked him to be. In the single episode they made, he impersonates Stevie Wonder. He impersonates Michael Jackson. Were they going to have him put a different latex on in every episode and and play a different side character? Sadly, this cheap-ass sitcom couldn't afford that. That would have been nice, though. And the, quote, funniest joke is when Tariq says, In America, I can be anything. I can be a Beverly Hills cop. You could be a Beverly Hills cop, too. In 48 hours, we could be trading places. Okay, I'm good. (laughs) I I thought I wanted to see it, but I actually, it just passed before my eyes. That joke killed it for you? (laughs) No, I think I did. Like, I just like that. I see it and I I got it. Thanks. Moving on. Yeah, moving on to coming to American Tunes. Let's hope they can tell better jokes. 30 years later. Yeah, I, I do think that this sitcom where another joke was literally about Africans eating insects is best long forgotten. I never even knew it existed until researching for this movie. But a sequel, I never thought that would be coming. Landis is not doing Coming to America, the sequel. It's always nerve-wracking to A, do a sequel so many years later. And even do a sequel to a comedy at all. I mean, Eddie Murphy's career is in a very different place 33 years later than it was. 
But I love these characters. I'm happy to see that they have not gone the Top Gun 2 route. I mean, they are bringing back Sherry Headley to play Lisa. They're not trying to put Eddie with a younger person. Or Vanessa Williams. Yeah. So, you know, not everybody's coming back, but I don't think Eric LaSalle would. I mean, something happened during ER. I never thought that man could be funny when I saw him in ER, but I didn't realize it was this. Unless there's secret cameos, which I don't know. But... It does look they're going Crocodile Dundee 2 with Coming to America 2. Can that work? I hope so, but we'll find out on Amazon. The one thing that's got me excited, this may sound weird, but I, I want to see Wesley Snipes. Nope, yeah, that does not sound weird. I was going to bring that up because post-tax problems, I really like Wesley Snipes. Like, Expendables 3, that movie's garbage, but he is so funny in it. My name is Dolomite. He stole the film, like, my favorite part of that film. Like, I'm excited about Wesley Snipes showing up. Yeah, it looks like he's playing some kind of military despot leading a coup, or it actually kind of sounds like King for a Day. I don't know. Maybe they're finally ripping off Art Buckwald's concept. But it's also the same director as my name is Dolomite, Craig Brewer, who did Tussle and Flow. I, I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't typically do sequels to comedies. But uh, yeah, 33 years later, hopefully they have enough material to do an extension. The fact that it is Craig Brewer and that I did love Dolomite is the one thing giving me hope. Yeah. But he also did the Footloose remake and that thing blew. In the meantime, if you can join us for spring, it doesn't feel like spring, I know, but we've already started our spring donation drive. We are in the platinum realm, enjoying international terrorism. Enjoying? (laughs) Yeah. This week, Gerard Butler is uh, helping London bridges not fall down and London has fallen. Of the two 2013 White House attack movies, the Gerard Butler one is not the one I thought would get a sequel, but here we are. <laughs> Two sequels. We're, we're doing the whole series, plus we've already released White House Down as well. And Olympus Has Fallen. So those are available for a platinum donation. We've got another huge donation drive. There's only so many weeks in a year, so I don't know how Stuart finds in the schedule ways to keep putting more movies in the donation drives, but this is an amazing donation drive. We are starting with Platinum for reasons that of timeliness, you know, but we have two more weeks of the Olympus series. So that's four Platinum movies plus silver and gold for $35. Gold level for $25 or more. So much gold. Oh, dear God. There's more gold than there was in Coming to America. And this is real gold. We're talking David Fincher thrillers. And almost an equal number of Dragon Tattoo movies? (laughs) I've never seen any of those, so I don't even know what I'm in for. Arnie, I know you're very impressionable. You might end up with a Dragon Tattoo after seeing them. (laughs) I'm itching for some new ink, i got to be honest. So maybe, (laughs) if they're good, that's for 25 or more. And then Silver Level for just a $10 donation gets you reviews of five Dirty Harry films. I've never seen most of those either, so I'm the newbie on all of this, but I'm excited for what this donation drive is, how big it is, and hopefully you guys can come out and support our show and get these bonus podcasts as our thank you for your support and for keeping Now Playing going. 
And also, be sure to subscribe to our now-playing In Focus newsletter every Friday. Jason sends out a new letter saying what we hosts are watching that we aren't reviewing, or some things going on in our schedule, or just some big movie business news. I think he does a great job. I look forward to reading it every week. And if you subscribe, there have been a number of giveaways we've been doing. And so when we do giveaways, if you get the newsletter, you're already entered to win. Just head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click subscribe at the top, and enter your email address for the Now Playing In Focus newsletter. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. You bet. Until next time, I renounce my throne. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. So, you see, my son, there is a very fine line between love and nausea. We hope you enjoyed the show. I will cherish this experience for the rest of my life. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. I'd like to give a big round of applause to my band, Sexual Chocolate. And um, while you're in the clapping mood, give yourselves a round of applause. You're so lovely. Everyone's so lovely. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. See? find a man that can satisfy me. Now some guys go hour, hour and a half, that's it. A man's got to put in overtime for me to get off. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's supposed to be Prince of Wakanda. Wakanda is a fictional place. Not to everybody. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Come take it out. Most urgent. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Now, ushers are passing through the aisles with donation baskets, so please, give all you can. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. We're happy to get the kind of money that jingles. But we'd rather get the kind that falls. And you can join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. Kindly send 300000 American dollars immediately, as we are in dire straits. Should I make it 400000 You think that would be enough? You are right. 500000 As long as you're asking, why don't we go for a cool million? You do not think that would be too much? Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. I feel like breakdancing. <laughs> you can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when they're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. 
Yeah, I want to work in videos, but really I want to be my own star in the videos because I want to become a pop singer and a rock singer and write my own songs, produce my own songs. And then I'm going to try an actress because people tell me how talented I am. I'm a natural and stuff like that. So then I'm going to write my own stories and direct my own stories and, you know, produce the movies I'm doing. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I'm the king of this shop. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I am more than the exalted ruler of this land and the master of all I survey. I'm also a concerned dad. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. They're going to sharpen you too, nephew. Now Playing credits read by Brock. Maybe we'll have a chance again to talk on a professional level. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Not everybody thinks like you, Patrice. Yes, they do. Just don't admit it. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Let them wear our princely robes. We're in New York now. Let us dress as New Yorkers. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2021. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. You may go home now. Good night. Dutch. But I remember that in Living Color skit, he didn't give a damn that they kept saying, my best friend, Eddie Murphy. He was most upset because they put ass pads in the actor and they were saying he had a big ass. I'm really upset about that. <laughs> I remember this. That's like a badge of honor now. That's so weird to get upset over that. <laughs> well, if you're a woman, I don't know how <laughs> How many men like having a big bath? I don't know. I, I wish I had a nicer ass. I don't see too many men doing covers of Anaconda. Is their only event. In their scene, like fighting with kendo sticks, they get to use their... I keep wanting to say Wakanda. What, 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 Zamunda. But yeah, here, this now shows the Wakandans. I know. And I don't know if Arsenio can sing. I mean, saying, have me and Arsenio sing? Um, mm -hmm. Well, there was Chunky A, but for another time. Well, I thought the Chunky A was in that uh, In Living Color skit that pissed Arsenio off. No, Chunky A is Arsenio. You don't remember this? No. Arsenio got into a fat suit and sang, your love makes me say, ow. It was like a, a riff on Cameo. Yeah, he has a whole musical comedy album. He's a real weird Al Yankovic. Oh. Mm. Yep. Yeah.